when something breaks at the house, I just don't call the repair guy. I fix it. I've, I've never had a new car in my life. I'm on my fourth car. Two got wrecked and one I just gave away after 32 years, my old truck. So when you don't churn houses and cars and I never had kids and, and all those kinds of things, I don't run the overhead that the normal middle class person does. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Uh, we're excited to say that we're coming up on our 50th interview, our 50th episode. So thanks to all of you who are listeners uh, and, and to those of you who have been on the show uh, and to all of those who have reached out. It's it's nice uh, when some of you guys reach out and, and tell, you, tell us that you've enjoyed the show, that you've learned from it. It's rewarding for us uh, and for the time that we spent in trying to put these interviews together and, and get in contact with these millionaires. So thanks again for listening. If you'd like to be on the show as either a guest interview or a millionaire interview, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, or you can find us at our website, millionairesunveiled.com. Uh, per usual, if you'd like to invest in some multifamily opportunities, uh, we've got a couple of deals coming up here soon uh, in the multifamily space in both the, the Northeast region and the Southwest region is where we typically do our deals. So if you'd like more information on that, please feel free to reach out. Uh, historically, IRRs have been in the 20s. Uh, if you have any questions for any of our millionaire interviews, feel free to reach out. A couple of you have. We try to incorporate that in some of the interviews. We're trying to, to branch out and kind of change up these interviews so they don't become monotonous, become the same over and over. We continue to work on other things with the show, including audio quality. And so thanks again for listening. Let's get into the introduction for today's episode. So on today's show, we have Jeff, and Jeff has a current net worth of $1.4 million. He's a custodian, and he's worked for the same small school district for about 30 years, since 1988 when he started out of high school. He has about $1 million in retirement accounts and then uh, $180,000 in his house in equity. He also has, he doesn't have a cell phone, and so that's one interesting thing we learned. We talked to him about happiness and confidence levels as he grew his income, and we talked about how he was able to save and live off of making $40,000 a year is, is what he's currently at. He started at about 14000 when he started in 1988. So a totally different interview from any of the others that we've had on this show uh, so far. So we're excited about that. We asked if being a millionaire was ever his goal and asked if he felt like he sacrificed. He felt like he didn't sacrifice much and that he kind of always got what he needed, that he, he likes living a simple life and and he's a simple guy. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Jeff. Today on the show, we've got Jeff with us. Jeff, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, basically, I do custodial work for a small school district. Uh, we have about 650 kids, and I've worked there since 1987. I'm coming up on 31 years, the end of September. Wow. So did you start there right out of high school? No, I did various jobs out of high school, all with a blue-collar theme to them. And the reason I had taken this job is I had moved up to Reading with some family, and one of my family members said, hey, why don't you come and be a substitute custodian? I had visions. You know, everybody says, go to college, go to college. And that really hadn't been my skill set, but I always am into improving myself. 
started as a substitute and I got a six hour custodial job and started taking classes out at our junior college here in our area and then always had visions of moving on up. But through my coursework and stuff, I found that to get through that, you have to have a certain innate skill and I didn't really have that. And I figured if I'm going to stay doing this kind of low level job, I better try to enhance my wealth, maybe not through W2 work, but through investing. And that's where my junior college came in. I took uh, personal finance and then I took investments 44 and that was kind of like the key that unlocked the door for me because I'd already had um, savings in me from my dad. He was from the depression. So we always were savers, but not investors in my family. Wow. So what is your net worth today? My net worth right now with my wife is 1.4 million. Wow. And how is that broken up? Yeah, basically the way it's broken up right now, if you looked at it all together is as I reach over here and start grabbing my paperwork. Basically we got, uh, we got about 30,000 in money market accounts that are broken out across brokerage accounts. That's about 2% of our net worth. And then you go all the way down through the bonds and the bond funds. And that represents 322,000 or 22% of the total net worth. And then we have 12% in large cap domestic stock funds. And these are all Vanguard products. And that comes in at 175000 And then if you go down in the mid and small cap, these are all Vanguard funds. And with my wife's included, that's 182000 And if you go through the international, that comes out to be 19% or 284000 and then on the investments that are would be outside, we have a CalPERS pension at 180,000. That's mine. My wife's has got 30,000 in it. There's 60,000 of Series E bonds. There's 180,000 of equity in the house. And then we got about 6,457 401k, but that's in the core savings plus. And then the rest is all out in the Charles Schwab. Uh, brokerage accounts that are attached to the 457 and 401k. So if you add those four up, that equals about 31% of our total net worth is outside of retirement investment accounts. Wow. So be, so before I do a, uh, a Dave Ramsey freak out here on your custodian millionaire status, how did you decide that's how you wanted to invest the money? Was that from those personal finance classes? Was it just, was it just reading about personal finance online? How did, how did you decide that's kind of the direction you wanted to go? Well, basically up until about 2002, I wasn't doing any investing in the stock market. I have to realize I came from a very conservative background with my father and I used to chase certificates, the deposits around the country when you used to get like five and six percent. I was doing investing with IRAs and stuff like that. And and in about 1997, after I had taken a personal finance class, I discovered my school district offers a 403B program. And during that time, from about 2002 back to 1997, I invested in fixed annuity products because I was familiar with those because they're like a CD inside the 403B. And then I started reading some literature that was put out by a website 
It's called 403B Wise by Dan Otter and Scott Downhauser, if I'm pronouncing his last name right. They wrote a book called Teach and Retire Rich, and then they wrote another book called 403B Wise, guys. And that was kind of really opened my eyes to what I was doing. And if I was really going to ever build any wealth, it wasn't going to be off of just saving and living frugally. So I had to kind of shed all that fear about investing in the stock market because my family had experienced loss during the 20s and 30s. And that's how my dad's family came to California. So that was like the turning point would be in November of 2002. I started investing through Vanguard when I was able to get them on my vendor list and understanding their philosophy. And it fit into me, you know, just passive and just pile as much money in there as you can. Yeah. So you've been working at the same job for about 30 years or 30 years if you started in 88, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What's your What's your salary been through your, through your working life and how much of that have you been able to save annually? Well, when I started there, because I was looking at my Social Security statement, I think I was making 14000 and now I just finally hit 42000 And that's quite a bit for a custodian because in our society, that you know, the marketplace doesn't really value that. I make just under $20 an hour. And then another reason I can shelter so much of my income is because I'm on the high deductible insurance plan. So I don't have a lot of money at all being taken out of my paycheck. So I use the high deductible plan as kind of a, a shield and stuff. And I'd probably say my lifetime savings rate's probably been... 25% or more. And I think I just got it up to 55 because now I'm married and my wife can help me with some of the expenses. Wow. Good for you. And so she also works now, right? Before the show, just for, yeah, our, listeners, just for our listeners, before the show, you shared with us that you are uh, newly married. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got married in 2017. So how did you stay motivated? Did you ever feel, I don't mean this, of course, at all demeaning, did you ever feel like maybe you couldn't get ahead or it was taking longer than you thought? You know, that's kind of interesting because some people would think that, oh, poor, you know, you're a janitor or whatever. And I, I never really saw that. I just tried to use my resources, you know, when I was halfway through junior college and realizing that my skill set wasn't really there and I had to work really hard to get through those courses that I had to kind of look at what my skills are and what I'm good at. And my dad used them. And I don't know if that's just part of my DNA or just modeling, but just using your mind to be able to utilize resources to the most effective way you can. You know, like when something breaks at the house, I just don't call the repair guy. I fix it. I've I've never had a new car in my life. I'm on my fourth car. Two got wrecked and one I just gave away after 32 years, my old truck. So when you don't churn houses and cars and I never had kids and and all those kinds of things, I don't run the overhead that the normal middle class person does. Does that make sense? Yeah. How many miles do you put on those cars? Um, I think the Corolla's got about 242,000 on it and I bought it in 2006 when gas went crazy. And I put maybe 10 or 12 because I live really close to work. So when I bought my house in 2010, I wanted to make sure it was in a close radius because I didn't want to have to travel a long distance. So I, I factor all those kinds of things in, you know, where how far is the house going to be and what's the, you know, wear and tear on the car and operating costs and all that stuff. Awesome. So, you know, I have friends that are that make a lot of money but are still not able to, to make any progress in savings, you know, even if it's just $500 a month or something. And and I think most of it is due to spending and keeping up with the Joneses and 
how were you able to be so disciplined or did those things not matter to you or how did you stay so focused on just, you know, doing what made you happy and, and being yourself? I'll be honest with you and the listeners. I'm kind of odd. Always have been. I'm one of the guys in high school that would car cover his car with sheets and people would make fun of me and stuff. And what was instilled in me is the three P's I finally realized called promote, preserve, protect. And that's what I always do. You know, I'm, I went, I went to Australia three times. It's winter there. I've got a sun hat on. I got sunblock on. I got long sleeve shirts. I'm 53 and my skin's not trashed. It's just those kinds of values. And, you know, I have friends that live in 4,400 square foot houses and are at 2,800 now. And I, you got to look internal. You can't look external. I kind of feel like I'm on my own little journey. And I felt that I was going to always have to take the road less traveled. And those are the, the opportunity costs for not generating high income over my lifetime. Had to use what I know what to do. Was, makes any sense. was becoming a millionaire ever part of the goal? And if so, when did that kind of become a goal? Oh, yeah. It's, um, I was just talking to my wife because you have several books on your resource list on your website. And I was showing them to her just recently. And uh, when I read The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley, that flipped the switch. And then at the time, there was another book called The Wealthy Barber. I remember that and The Millionaire Mindset. And I'm like, I can do this. This is It's not going to happen overnight, but I can do that. And, you know, the only reason I'm able to have made it this far is I had low housing costs. I lived in someone's backyard for 14 years, and my rent was $365 for all those years. And any time I'd get a raise, I'd just keep throwing it in, keep throwing it in. So how long did it take you to make that first home purchase? You said you lived in, in the backyard for 14 years, so you were a renter. And then after that, is that when you made your first home purchase? No, what happened was in 2006, I was married for a while and she came from a frugal background and I was able to assist her to get to where she needed to be for financial independence. I really try not to use the retirement word anymore. I try to say financial independence because that's really what you're trying to get to. And I was with her for several years and the operating cost with us was very low. And then things changed with us in 2010, and I was back with my father, and it's time for you to go buy a house. And I said, well, right now? I said, the world's blowing up. You know, everything's going crazy. He goes, this is the best time to go. So I, within a couple of weeks, I had to stop all the money going in because from like, um, oh, gosh, when the market went really crazy, I, I took my whole paycheck and threw it into the market. I, I went the opposite direction. For a while, I was getting like a $24 paycheck for a while because I had savings to live on and my cost of living was low. So I just threw the whole paycheck in Wow! during those downtimes. And then also, too, you have to realize through 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and up until 10, I was transferring money out of my fixed annuity products to Vanguard while the market was down. Because by 2009, there was going to be a TPA, that's a third-party administrator, between me and Vanguard and my district. And before then, you could do whatever you wanted in those plans. And I was liquidating that fixed annuity money and transferring it over to Vanguard while the market was down. And believe it or not, some of my highest returns are from when the market was down the most. Because I was buying it when it was cheap. That makes sense. Yeah, do you know what your overall return has been over your investing career? Yeah, I I, I just found that out. Um, Vanguard just 
is no longer my custodian and sent it to Newport Group where they have some really interesting analytical tables to figure out what your rate of return is. My annualized rate of return is 7.45%, and my cumulative personal rate of return during the period, this it takes me all the way back to this November of 2002 all the way up until March of this year, is 200%. And wow. Out of that time, and out of that time period, where do you think my highest personal rate of return was? When do you think would be the highest, my highest personal rate of return? You mean what year? Yeah, what years do you think? I'd say 9 to 11. You got it, 08, 09, until 10, because that's when I bought the house, and I went to the mortgage guy, and he says, you have to show us something in your paycheck, because I had no paycheck. I had a so I, had to, I shut off the money. And when you look at the graph over that time period, it looks like one of those volcanoes out in the desert. You ever been driving along in the desert, and you see those big stacks? Out in the desert, and that's yeah. like an extinct volcano stack out in the middle of the desert. That's what my graph looks like. And then from like 2010 up until 14, I didn't do any investing because I had to get this house under control because I bought a short sale. Wow. I bought the dog. I bought the dog in the good neighborhood. And I had to come up with like $50,000 really fast. And I had to liquidate a Roth account when it was down. And, but, it, I got a nice middle-class 1,400-square-foot house in a nice neighborhood, and it's almost paid off, and life is good. So what were you investing in back when you first started? I, I, I presume it wasn't the same Vanguard funds you're in now. No, no, no. Basically, when I first got into Vanguard, I didn't have much money, so I did like a targeted dated fund. And as my knowledge increased, I expanded out. I actually have 16 different funds of I've sliced and chopped up the market. That's how it is. And most of my emphasis is on small and mid-cap and more international because I have a pension. You know how husband and wife have strengths and weaknesses? I try to use my pension and my DB and DC plan like a husband and wife. I try to play them off each other. Yeah, totally. So at at this point, you're you're financially independent. Would that be accurate? By, I calculated, not with my wife's help, by age 55, even though I'm a low-wage worker, I could pull it off on the 32000 a year because I have low expenses. Yeah. If you have low expense, yeah, I have low expense. I think last year was 22000 to run the whole place. That's the taxes and insurance and the payment and all that stuff, and the utilities. I cool the house with an evaporative cooler. I don't use the AC unit. Drought-resistant front yard and white roof that reflects heat. and All these little things kind of add up. Yeah, totally. So yeah, cause, where where do you kind of go from here? I mean, is there, is there a target date that you want to retire? Well, um, I don't know if it will be a sense of retirement because I really don't like that term because it means to like retract or withdraw. It's kind of a 19th century term and I don't really think it fits for the 21st. Financial independence for me is going to be able to go out and do some things that I want to do to kind of change things. Like I think in California, we need to have a comprehensive financial literacy program for the K-12 school system. And the only way you're going to get that is go to Sacramento and get a law passed and find some funding. And I just want to make people financially literate because when I became literate, that was like the key, you know, even on a small salary, you know, you, you, 
over time, you can build it if you just make the right choices at the right time. And that comes through financial literacy. So, so when would you kind of take a step away from, from what you're doing on the day to day now at the school and kind of pursue some of those other things? Yeah, I'm looking at, uh, 2025. Probably it'll be in, be in January. And at that time, my pension will be at about 101% because I did some things to the pension to help improve it for me. And these uh, balances I was telling you about in my Vanguard account would have been higher because I used some of that money to buy pension credits to kind of front load that pension. I bought like a half a decade of service credit to help boost that pension because I have a low pay rate. So the, the pension will be at 100%, meaning you'll have that $40,000 salary for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. It'll be more. It'll be like probably by then it'll probably be about 42, 43, something like that. Awesome. Good for you. How much do you live off a year? How much do I live off of? Um, yeah. I think, I think my income's like a, what, 27,000? I think my wife and I together, I think our taxable income is projected to be 44,000 this year when you, when you take the 24,000 for a standard deduction. And I then mean, we I- live a good life. I mean, you know, we go take trips and, you know, we eat out and we have budgets and envelopes and we have internet. She has a cell phone. And- have two pay for cars and we have food and I heat the house with a pellet stove so I'm not using natural gas and a little more work there. But you don't have a cell phone though. We got to bring up that. Yeah, I don't have a cell phone, but I do use the internet and I listen to podcasts and, and you know, and my wife does, you know, her little side business with eBay and most of my stuff, if I need anything, I just kind of wait for a yard sale or a thrift store and then magically appears. I think this year, what did I say? I'm projected to put away, let's see, $8,000 is going to the principal on the house because I refied it twice down to a 2.39 on a 10-year loan. That's when I took my second job for a while to put more towards the principal so I could get a 10-year loan. My PERS is going to be at about 3000 because they take 7%. And this year I got a raise and I was projected to put 10000 in the 403B, but I think I'm going to be at 14000 because I got a retro raise. So what I do is I go in and calculate how much has to go to Social Security and Medicare, and then whatever's left over, I just up my contribution and catch it and throw it in, if that makes sense. So I think this year it's going to be about 21000 my savings. You call it savings. So what did you do for the second job, and how long did you work that? Um, I did, when I got this house, it was like really in disrepair. It would be like a, a friend of mine that does rehabs. He called it a, a cosmetic fixer in 2012 through probably end of 14. I would work my regular eight hour job as a custodian at my regular job. And then I would go work at another school district as a custodian at night. Gotcha. So some days were like four, 14 hour days, 16 hour days. But it wasn't forever. I had a goal. I had to generate um, more cash to put towards the house to knock that principal down so I could get it in a 10-year mortgage. When I bought the house, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, when I bought the house, I bought a $170,000 house on a $32,000 income, a neighborhood I really technically shouldn't be in, but it was the frugality that got me here, not the income. And you owe how much on it? Remind me. Um, I got it down to sixty-seven thousand now. Okay. 
Okay. And um, originally I was on a 30-year fix at 4.5, and I I think I cleared about 15 years worth of payments off of it, and that was because of the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing to recapitalize for the middle class. And everything, you know, my house was almost a hundred thousand dollars off list price when I bought it. Was going to foreclosure. So you'll keep working, you think, till twenty twenty five, seven more years or so. Um, six, six. Uh, yeah, it'll be real close. It'll be like six. It'll be okay. It'll be close. Yeah, I figure after this school year, I have five more school cycles, and that's because I just want to push the pension to a hundred percent because very few classified ever do. Gotcha. What do you, do you feel like you've made any financial mistakes, or are you pretty happy with with how you've done investing wise throughout your your life and your career? Yeah, what I, I I guess the mistake for me would have been when I liquidated my Roth back in 2010 because my Roth wasn't designed to be an emergency fund to fund a house, and I had to take an eight thousand I took an eight thousand dollar hit on that, but I wasn't going to play pay private mortgage insurance. And I had to show the negotiator through Wells Fargo that I was in a strong position, had the 20% down, I had the good state job or school district job and long work history, and I was the only game in town, so let me buy it. Let me buy this distressed asset from you. Would you say that's been one of your best investments? The house? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the house is really an investment. Um, I did buy the house at a deep discount, and but I think probably the best investment is becoming financially literate and investing in Vanguard. And what I like about Vanguard structure is, is you're kind of an indirect owner in Vanguard. You know, it's kind of a co-op or non. You know, they do it for like very little. Like I was just looking at our portfolio; most of it's all at Vanguard funds and. On almost a million dollar portfolio, Vanguard saying we're saving about nine thousand dollars a year, and on my portfolio it's four thousand two hundred fifty five. What was the the conversation like with your with your new wife about money and and kind of what the path that you had been on? Because you've obviously sacrificed, you know, in some people's eyes, quite a lot, living in in the backyard, renting very cheaply, you know, buying a distressed asset, investing you know, 25 to 50% of your income. What did she say about the journey that you've been on? You know, I think she was pretty kind of impressed. I think she's not here right now. But when I met her in 2015, she was very open to showing me her portfolio and where it was at. And um, I think she was impressed that I was able to show her things that she had never was aware of and she was willing to take my advice and move it all to Vanguard and she has an advisor there and that was quite a undertaking getting all the accounts all in one place and consolidating everything so I think I might have impressed her because you know most people would look at me on the outside and say oh janitor you don't have much and I kind of experienced that with my first wife with their family is um I think their her, my first wife's family thought I was going to take her house or something. And when we split, we had a prenuptial. No, you know, everybody got to keep whatever they had, and there was no, you know, I need this account or whatever. So I tried to be very fair. But I think Donna probably saw that in me. What would you tell somebody who's who's just starting out? Who's you know, like you said, you know, before we talked on the show, it's not on a typical. Mm-hmm 
you know, high income path to, to re, you know, achieving financial independence? What should they do in this market and this economy and, and how should they kind of approach it? If I was talking to the 30 year old me, go against what everybody else is doing and work your strengths. If you're, if you're not wired for academics, don't drink the Kool-Aid and say, Oh, I got to go to college and run up 50 to $80,000 worth of debt and get a $40,000 a year job out of it. Don't do that kind of stuff. Look at really what your strengths are. Start a small business. Educate yourself financially. Always continue to be learning. Know as much as the person you're dealing with, whether it's a mortgage or insurance or a mutual fund product or anything like that. Always educate yourself. And I kind of, if I had known now like at 21 or 22, the portfolio would have been well over over a million, well over it. So that's what I would be telling a 30-year-old. Just do the opposite. Don't churn houses. Don't churn cars. I was just scanning my parking lot. There's five or six new cars with white plates on them. I'm like, yeah, there's more depreciating assets. And, you know, <laughs> be an individual. And, you know, do you want things or do you want time? I value time. Did you ever think about starting uh, your own business? You said your wife kind of does a little eBay business on the side. Did you ever think about doing something? I tried to do York's financial literacy back in the late 2000s when the market and the economy was all blowing up because I said, well, this will be the time when people really want someone to be like a coach or, you know, look out their best interest or say, hey, you know, I know where you're at, but maybe it was my approach or the area or what, or maybe middle class just doesn't want to learn. I don't, I don't know. It was, it was, I did it for like a year and a half and I was very disappointed. I spent many hours putting door hangers out, trying to do workshops. I even did radio things. And I don't know if it was just the time because everybody was scared, but I figured that would be the best time you need to learn financial education. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't build your life out on a ledge. So when the ledge falls off, you don't fall in. You know, like when I bought my house, I was the only one that had the money. My mom kept saying to me, she goes, you're going to get the house. You're the only one that's got any money. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, so that's what I would be telling people. No, I think I think it's great advice. So, so just kind of alluded to that maybe some of the listeners are are thinking I couldn't, you know, he sacrificed a lot, or maybe I couldn't live like that. Do you feel like you've sacrificed a lot? Not really. Um, not really in a sense because you have to realize when I was a kid growing up and everything. That was just the way we did. You know, we lived in a trailer that was worth less than the cabin cruiser, big cabin cruiser boat in the backyard. There's a high status middle class artifact, as Thomas Stanley would say. <laughs> and I just never thought we never just never had new cars. And we always took care of the ones we had. And, you know, and I don't think it's a sacrifice. I, what I think is a bigger sacrifice is when people work 12, 15 hours a day. And they don't have time to see their spouse or their girlfriend or their family or their kids. And they get all wrapped up in consumerism. And I have nothing against consumerism. I've taken three trips to Australia. And my wife and I just got back from a trip and everything. But it's like everything. It's got to be in moderation. You know, my brother, he was really back in the 80s strongly encouraging me to be a truck driver. I have a Class A license. I'm sure if I was a truck driver, I probably could have added, what, another million dollars worth of lifetime income to me that I would have never had the time to learn about 403Bs and all those things, you know? So yeah. it's, it's all trades. It's all trades, you know? 
Did hitting millionaire status affect happiness or confidence levels or, or anything for you? You know, I probably won't really feel like I've hit mil- millionaire status because it's my wife's addition to this and what her family did and their frugality and what that's kind of a legacy that she got. She's doing a lot of savings now, but when I personally go over the top and everything, and it just proves that you can do anything. Like if you set your mind to something, it will manifest itself. I know this sounds really hocus pocus, but I kept saying someday I will have a Vanguard. Everybody at my district said, no, you cannot add them. Persistence wins. Everybody said, oh, you're not going to be able to get your house. I got the house. Was it easy? No, I had to learn everything about short sales because the professionals that I had under me were not performing. And my dad says, if you want your house, you got to get into people's offices. And that's what I did. So I, I really think every everybody can do it. I, I really honestly, you know, my wages have stag- stagnated. I totally agree. But I always do ways of getting around things and use creative ways of doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to uh, finish here with some rapid-fire questions, okay. some millionaire questions. So most Go expensive uh, jeans or pair of pants that you've ever purchased? Probably $20, and now I get yard sale or thrift store ones that are in really good shape. Okay. Most expensive shoes? Um, I haven't bought a new pair of shoes probably in 15 years, um, $20 when I was buying retail stuff. Okay. Most expensive car? My Toyota Corolla. I think that's $3,400, and even with all the miles on it, it's still worth about $1,500. It was $3,400 when you bought it? How many miles on it? Um, I got it with $99,000, and it's got $242,000. And my goal is to take it to three hundred dollars and potentially just put another engine in it and keep driving. And you do all the the car repairs yourself as well? Yeah, my training in high school and stuff was mechanical. So I still do the oil changes, and I can do brakes. That was one thing my wife said, can you do brakes? I said, yeah, I can do brakes. <laughs> and an example was I needed to put struts on the car, and it needed new tires. And if I had gone to a retail place, it would have been about 1600 I bought really good used tires and some struts off of the Internet, and it was 500 and I did it myself. Wow. So, I mean, you know. Good for you. Uh, most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Oh, my gosh. I don't eat out a lot. My wife does because she comes from your neck of the woods, New York, so she's used to culture and stuff. I don't know, 20 bucks? Um, um, we, I try to look at eating out like a treat, if that makes sense. Yeah. Old school, but yeah. I, kind of, I, I kind of look at it cause, so you don't get satiated or, you know, like your brain gets so used to it, it doesn't have much value anymore. I'm sure there's a good word for it. Yeah. Uh, what's not worth the money to you. What what do you try and really save on? Uh, I try I try to save on doing things myself so I have more free time. Okay. Does that make sense? And I'm yeah. To and what's what's worth spending more on? You kind of said maybe a couple trips or vacations. Oh, or what, what else is worth experience, experiences. Like in my thirties, I know I was living in someone's backyard, but I was pulling off some trips that middle aged baby boomers do. Like when I went to. Western Australia, I wanted to see stromatolites, and they're kind of a coral-looking rock that was supposedly supposed to be the first colonizers on the planet, not to offend anyone's value system that produced oxygen. And Western Australia was one of the few places that had clean water for them, and I wanted to see them. Hmm. So I 
flew in a plane 21 hours to get to Western Australia to see him. I know that's kind of weird, but I'm different. So, uh, what was your high school GPA? Ooh, high school GPA. Ooh, I don't know, 2.5 somewhere in there. I'm not very academic. Very difficult with uh, writing and spelling, but I do see concepts. And I'm persistent, so that helps. Awesome. So, any last advice, Brandon? We talked a little bit about advice for somebody in your shoes, but I guess in summary, what do you, what do you think the biggest uh, things were for you to get to where you are now? What was the biggest motivation? What, what kind of kept you going, or what did, what final advice do you have? Well, the final advice I would offer is is that I know this sounds strange, but you have to have your income to a certain level to build any kind of wealth. So if you're like making fifteen or twenty thousand, it's going to be extremely difficult on you. But if you can get your income up into thirty or forty, and if you have a spouse that's on the same page, and you use the economy of scale of being married, and you just don't scale up in houses, and you stick with them through thick and thin, and if you do have children, you kind of make them work for things, and don't overindulge. I know these are old values because I'm kind of an artifact from my dad. That anybody can get to wherever they want to be, you know, and, and then me living where I have, I do now, it's not like in a high urban cost area. So that's probably helped as well. But I would have never been able to put any of this money away if I'd bought a house in the early nineties. Jeff, you're a total simple guy. If somebody were to give you a million bucks, would you, would you live any differently? Not really, not really, because what the whole thing is, is the money's just a tool. It's just a tool to get me to have financial independence. That's that's all it is. That's that's my job. It's no different than somebody that's a doctor or highly compensated employee. This is my job. My 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 job at the school district, yeah, that provides income and and stuff like this. But this is my job. I'm a I'm a chief financial officer, and uh, you know, and you only get to go through it once. You can't back up. Say, oh, I'm going to start in my 30s. You have to start earlier. If I'd started this in my early 20s. There'd probably be another half a million there. And then what made most of the returns was back when the market was going, was going down back in 07, 08. That's where most of my returns came from. You know, there were some, there's, I'm looking at them here and I'll get off real quick. 2003, 51%. 204, 29, negative. 2005, 60. 2006, 10. 2007, 34%. Wow, how can it be 34%? Market's going down. 2008, 44. 2009, 11. 2010, I quit investing. Negative 14. 2.5. 2012, 3.3, and on up. And then when our latest president got elected, 15%. So, you know, it's time in the market. You know, there's there's no loss. There's only change. I just read a book on that. The gentleman said in the book, there's no losses. There's only change. And I'm expecting the market to go down again. You got Jeff with a net worth of, of $1.4 million. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. And you have a nice evening, okay? Awesome. Thanks, Thank you, you, Jeff. No problem. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.